This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. Grace O'Malley. Her name conjures up images of a wild, sword-wielding pirate terrorizing merchants off the west coast of Ireland. But in reality, she was far from the stereotypical, patch-eyed, wooden-legged pirate of folklore. From her point of view, she really wasn't a pirate at all. In this episode, I explore the woman behind the legend, the high-ranking, educated, intelligent leader of Connaught, who won an admirer, if not an ally, in the form of Elizabeth I, Queen of England. In 1530, Grace O'Malley was born into an Irish society that was at the mercy of a dysfunctional political system. In theory, Ireland had been under British rule since the King of Leinster, Dermot McMurrah, invited Norman invaders to Wexford so he could regain his crown. The Norman state, before long, Pope Adrian IV declared that England's Henry II was the rightful ruler of the Emerald Isle. But Henry and his successors had bigger fish to fry, fending off constant attacks on their territories in France, not to mention occasional violent rebellions in England. Ireland was largely ignored, left in the hands of an assortment of Norman nobles and Irish clans who traced their origins to the pre-Christian era. One such clan were the O'Malleys. They dominated an area around Burrisk, in what is today County Mayo. They erected castles along the coastline and collected taxes from people fishing in the coastal waters. Further inland lay the territory controlled by the Burks, a clan of mixed Irish and Norman ancestry. They were the de facto overlords. The O'Malley's one of several clans with authority over certain jurisdictions. Ireland as a whole was held together by an even more powerful group, the originally Norman Fitzgeralds of Kildare. They were the officially sanctioned Lords of Ireland as appointed by the English. Not that that held a lot of sway in areas of Ireland ruled by clans such as the Burks and O'Neills. But the Fitzgeralds got too big for their boots and started meddling in British politics. They forged close ties with Britain's nemesis, France, and even entertained rival claimants to the English throne. The situation became more complicated still when Henry VIII 
broke with the Pope during the English Reformation, the majority of British subjects quickly fell into line and embraced the Protestant religion. Those that didn't either practiced their faith in secret, fled the country, or ran the gauntlet of dodging witch hunts seeking to expose treasonous plots. But the Irish largely ignored the Reformation. They had their own tradition of Catholic monasticism extending back into Roman times. Henry VIII was the king in name only, so few people had any interest in cutting the ties with the Pope. Henry's henchman, Thomas Cromwell, tried to get Ireland in line by giving regional rulers lordships and English titles. The Irish played along, but pretty much carried on as they were, without much regard for Henry's edicts. Over time, the English tried a variety of methods to get the Irish to heal, that ranged from invasions to the seizing of land. The young Grace O'Malley was probably oblivious to the wrestling for power, as the drama largely played out on the East Coast, far from the rugged, windswept cliffs of Mayo. We don't know a great deal about her childhood, other than a single anecdote recounting her desire to travel as a trader to Spain at a very young age. Her father, probably wisely, insisted it was a bad idea, but the excuse he gave was that her hair might get caught in the ship's ropes. Presented with this rebuttal, Grace simply cut off her locks. This bald-headed look led to her Irish nickname, Grain, which was the Gaelic term for a crew cut. We don't know if the haircut was enough to change her father's mind, but we do know she was educated. Her native tongue was Gaelic, but she was also fluent in Latin, the language of the church and of the aristocracy who conversed in Latin with international visitors. Around the time of Henry VIII's death in England, Grace was married to Donal O'Flaherty, a powerful chieftain who was heir to a large territory in Galway. Under Irish customs, Grace's family provided O'Flaherty with a substantial dowry, but the property she owned before the marriage remained hers and hers alone. It's believed she already owned several ships and commanded troops when she was married. Her husband, despite his ancestry, wasn't cut out for being a leader. For one thing, he was bad-tempered and often engaged in fights with rival clans, most notably the Joyces. Some sources suggest Grace wrestled effective control of his domain from him because of his ineptitude. But her husband's quarrelsome nature led to his demise when he was murdered at the behest of the Joyce clan. With him out of the way, they planned to seize his Cox castle, but they underestimated the resolve of his widow. She rallied her forces and repelled the invasion. The castle was then retitled in her honour as Hen's Castle. With her husband dead, his lands reverted to his family, and Grace took up residence in O'Malley territory on the Isle of Clare. It's here that the legendary pirate figure began to emerge. She didn't have any land or much money, but she did own three galleys and commanded a large number of men. She put her resources to good use in piracy. Obviously, piracy was frowned upon, and there were stiff penalties for pirates, but the industry was a murky one. Even Queen Elizabeth worked in tandem with pirates so long as they targeted Spanish freighters. 
O'Malley justified her actions years later when she said that discord and dissension were everywhere. Every chief took arms by strong hand. In other words, Grace was just standing up for herself and emulating the antics of the powerful men of Ireland. Her boats extorted passing vessels, but also raided communities along the coast of Ireland, from Donegal in the far north to Waterford in the southeast. It was a lucrative enterprise, but also a dangerous one. During this time, she became romantically involved with a young sailor. She had three young children from her marriage, and a criminal enterprise to run, so it was probably nice to have another pair of hands at home. But her lover met the same fate as her husband. He was murdered by rivals from the McMahon clan. As she had done before, Grace sought revenge and attacked the McMahons at Duna Castle. This act of revenge earned her a new nickname, the Dark Lady of Duna. In 1566, Grace married for a second time. On this occasion, she tied the knot with Richard Burke, a chieftain from the regional superpower Burke clan. The marriage seems to have been more a political alliance than a love affair. Richard largely stayed in his castle, while Grace returned to piracy along the coastline. It's reported that at one point, Richard returned to his castle to find Grace had packed his belongings and changed the locks. Despite this, the marriage endured, and she embraced the title Lady Burke when her husband was knighted. Her marriage to Richard produced one child, a boy named Tibbet, but as you might expect, his birth was an unconventional one. The child was born upon one of Grace's ships while it was under attack from a boat of Algerian pirates. Having delivered the baby, Grace returned to the deck, pistol in hand, and led the massacre of the invaders. <coughs> Her antics on the sea were becoming the stuff of legends but they also drew the ire of the English due to her attacks on ships in the Irish Sea. The Irish Council in Dublin investigated the matter. Grace's response was that she would carry on attacking them, but she'd give them 200 men to even the playing field. By 1576, the English were making significant inroads in Ireland and attempted to bring Grace to heel through the surrender and regrant policy. This entailed Irish chieftains handing the land over to the British crown, only for it to be immediately given back to them as a freehold on which they must pay rent. It was a variant of a policy Henry II had used to maintain power in England centuries before. The Irish who participated in this were expected to speak English, take a seat in Parliament and remain loyal to the English monarch. But none of this appealed to Grace, and she vowed to continue to defy the English. In 1576, Lord Deputy Sir Henry Sidney visited her in an attempt to collect a new tax. She refused to cooperate, but did take him on a coastal tour of her fortification. Upon returning to land, she billed him for the use of her ship. Grace continued to be a thorn in the side of the English and their weak underlings 
who were trying to gain control of Ireland. On one occasion, she took her troops to Howth Castle in Dublin and demanded an audience with the Earl. His servants politely explained the family were at dinner and dismissed O'Malley and her entourage. Feeling insulted, she captured his grandson and held him hostage until Howth agreed to employ an open-door policy and always ensure he set an extra place at dinner for unexpected visitors. Her criminal activities finally caught up with her when she was captured later that year. She spent three years in Dublin jail, but upon her release, she immediately returned to piracy. Coming up, a new nemesis brings trouble to O'Malley's doorstep. Fascinating People, Fascinating Places presents 5 Amazing Facts Brought to you by Daniel Mainwaring, author of When Babel Floods and The Treacherous Exhibit. When her father died, in line with the customs of the age, you might have expected her brother to assume control of the territory, but Grace claimed it as her own before he had a chance. While visiting Queen Elizabeth, she was handed a handkerchief to blow her nose. She shocked everyone present by tossing the used hanky in the fire. As she put it, Irish chieftains don't reuse dirty rags. In the centuries following her death, O'Malley's descendants rose in importance and lived in Westport House as the Viscounts of Mayo. The famous bronze statue of the pirate can still be seen in the grounds today. She's buried in a Cistercian monastery on the Isle of Clare, the island where she lived for so many years. People like O'Malley were becoming an increasing problem for Elizabeth I. Her position as queen was precarious at best. She had already dealt with the Ridolfi plot to usurp her. Rumours continued of various further plots involving her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. And it was just a matter of time before the Spanish Armada inevitably set sail with the intention of restoring Catholicism in England. She was handling these challenges while also trying to extend her realm into newly founded settlements in the Americas. The last thing she needed was a bunch of pirates and chieftains on her own doorstep, making her look weak. To address the Irish issue, she sent her Lord Deputy, John Perrow, to Ireland, initially to quell a rebellion in Ulster. He was described as a choleric man, and he didn't pull any punches hanging hundreds of suspects in 1871. In 1884, he officially took on the title Lord Deputy of Ireland, 
and tried to stamp out dissent across the whole country. One of his henchmen, Sir Richard Bingham, was sent to Connaught and his sights were firmly set on Grace O'Malley. In his mind, she had been the hidden hand driving rebellion for the past 40 years. His first step was to capture her son Tibbet, who was held hostage for several months. Meanwhile, he championed the cause of more corruptive clans over the Burks. They rebelled and were supported by the O'Malley's, including Grace. Bingham responded by again targeting one of her sons, this time her eldest, Owen. Bingham's men seized his land and imprisoned him. His mother claimed Owen had cordially invited Bingham into his house for a peaceful dialogue, but within days, Owen was dead, having been stabbed 12 times. O'Malley said it was a bold-faced murder. Bingham countered that Owen had been killed while trying to fight his way out of jail. Either way, Grace was once again out for revenge. She started an insurgency against Bingham, and it led to her having to take sanctuary in Ulster, as she was simply outgunned. Elizabeth I's problems converged with Grace O'Malley's in 1588, when King Philip II of Spain finally launched his invasion fleet from Lisbon. The English worried that the Spaniards would unite the rebellious Irish along the west coast, and work to overthrow the crown. Bingham set about terrorising Connaught in his quest to crush any hint of a rebellion. His methods were so extreme that he faced charges in Dublin. In modern terms, he was essentially accused of committing war crimes. The case against him was in part driven by his old boss, Perrot, but it backfired spectacularly as countercharges were made against his accuser. Perrault ended up in the Tower of London, while Bingham, even more enraged than usual, took out his frustrations on the citizens of Connaught. O'Malley's younger son, who is said to have been a misogynist, sided with Bingham against his own mother. Her lands were raided, fields burnt, buildings destroyed. Her other son, Tibbet, tried to come to her aid, but he was soon defeated while Grace's fleet was captured. The mighty chieftain queen was suddenly helpless, devoid of assets, arms, and at the mercy of the pernicious Bingham. It seemed as if the jig was up. But ever the survivor, Grace made an incredible move. She travelled to England and demanded an audience with the queen. This was an audacious move, to say the least. The queen was still on a high after batting away the ferocious Spanish Empire. She was at the height of her power, the mightiest woman on earth, and here was this bedraggled, middle-aged pirate who'd been defying her for years while plundering her subjects, begging her for support. Elizabeth didn't immediately allow an audience. Instead, she sent O'Malley a list of questions. She must have been curious about the woman, as she was at least giving her a chance to explain herself. Probably wisely, Grace was for the most part honest. She admitted to all her past shenanigans, though she pointed out she hadn't acted differently than anyone else. She said that after being pardoned by Perot while in Ulster, that it was Bingham's murder of her son and the destruction of her property that compelled her to spark a rebellion. Crucially though, O'Malley promised to be a dutiful servant going forward 
if the Queen would release Tibbet and Bingham would leave her alone. It would have been easy for Elizabeth to send Grace O'Malley to the Tower and allow Bingham to finish his job in Connaught. After all, despite her storied past, at this point she was a penniless widow without the means to defend herself. But Elizabeth agreed to meet her face to face. Perhaps Elizabeth consented to the meeting out of a sense of fairness. After all, O'Malley certainly had some legitimate gripes with Bingham. Or perhaps in O'Malley she saw a kindred spirit, a powerful woman trying to make a way in a world that was still very much owned by men. The summit didn't get off to the best of starts when O'Malley was found to be carrying a knife. She claimed it was purely for self-protection, an explanation Elizabeth thought reasonable. But another issue quickly arose when Grace refused to bow before the monarch. Again, she had an explanation, saying, you're not technically the Queen of Ireland. The discussion proceeded in Latin, the one language both women understood. The sympathetic Elizabeth granted many of O'Malley's wishes, including the reigning in of Bingham and the release of her son. She also provided the pirate with a pension to make up for her lost revenue. Grace O'Malley's biggest gamble had paid off. She had gone toe-to-toe with Queen Elizabeth and was now free to resume her life in Ireland. The problem was that Bingham was still on the scene. He agreed to stop harassing her, but he couldn't help himself. He simply didn't believe she was capable of being a good citizen and suspected she'd return to piracy when given the chance. He placed troops on her territory, who followed her about on land and at sea. Moreover, he forced her to feed the men, something which left her facing financial ruin. Grace responded by doing what had worked for her once before. She returned to London and complained to the Queen. This time, Bingham's troubles caught up with him, as Grace was just one of a plethora of English and Irish citizens making charges against him. He was ultimately imprisoned, albeit briefly. Bingham's demise failed to yield the peaceful retirement Grace seemingly sought, as a group of lords from Tyrone began attacking Crown supporters in Mayo. True to her word though, Grace and her son Tibbet came out fighting on behalf of Elizabeth I. For their troubles, they later received a loyalty payment of £200. By this time, Grace O'Malley was 70, had some money in the bank, and was free to operate without duress. So you might think she spent her last days enjoying the quiet life of an elderly spinster, but you'd be wrong. In 1601, not long before her death, a British ship came under attack in the Atlantic. The captain's log says the skirmish was brief, but his opponents were operating a ship belonging to a certain pirate named Grace O'Malley. We don't know exactly when and where she died, but it's thought she did die in 1603, the same year that Elizabeth I was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey. Curiously, she wasn't much celebrated in Ireland, perhaps because she had so many rivals who'd fought with her or been robbed by her forces. But almost immediately after her death, she became something of a folk hero in England. Over time, younger generations of Irish rehabilitated her memory, and she became a figure of both Irish nationalism and feminism. 
Her legacy also lives in a more tangible way. Her son Tibbet became the first Viscount of Mayo and sat in Parliament. Centuries later, her descendant, the latest Marquis of Sligo, was holding office during the Irish Potato Famine. Other landholders employed armed men to stem the threat of a rebellion from the starving masses. But like his famous ancestor, the Marquis had a different perspective on things. He turned his manor house into a huge soup kitchen and provided rifles to the starving peasants so they could hunt rabbits on his land. He was widely condemned for the move in Parliament. Critics said he was arming potential rebels. But regardless of the consequences, he made a bold move, and it paid off as many of his tenants survived the dreaded famine. Maybe he wasn't a pirate, but like his famous ancestor, he was someone of courage who was not going to back down. Pirate, chieftain, wife, mother, and survivor, Grace O'Malley now holds two contrasting roles in Irish history. On the one hand, she inspired Irish independence and became a hero for women seeking to redress the power imbalance in the patriarchal world. On the other hand, her eventual deal with Elizabeth effectively signalled the end of Irish freedom for the next 300 years. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fascinating People, Fascinating Places. If you have an idea for a topic we can cover, send an email to author at danielmainwaring.com. While you're here, check out the catalogue for past episodes. Here is a sneak peek. The Great Exhibition The 19th century's equivalent of the Olympics and Disney World rolled into one. There had been trade fairs before, most notably in Paris, but nothing on a global scale. Sixty years before the launch of the Titanic, in an era before cruise liners and airplanes, Henry Cole had a vision of an exhibition featuring the finest artisans, craftsmen and industrialists from around the world. But his vision evoked nightmares for his critics, who cited violent crime, terrorism, and even a revolution as possible consequences of the event. In this episode, I explore the origins of the Great Exhibition, the key players, the challenges, how it's unfolded, and its enduring legacy. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry.
Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.